Hello, and welcome to Litigator Libations, a podcast designed to provide short, substantive, and hopefully helpful guidance on discrete litigation topics so that defenders can pick and choose what they want to listen to without having to commit to an hour-long podcast with guests and entertaining banter. This not only saves you time, but also relieves me of the pressure of trying to be entertaining. This podcast is meant to be educational and to help litigators think creatively about the law and their cases. It is not meant to direct how anyone should actually litigate in a particular case. It is also unofficial insofar as the ideas are those of the presenters and do not represent the official views of the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. Litigation is, of course, an art, and each litigator must develop his or her own style. Always do what you believe is in the best interests of your client, consistent with the law and your professional and ethical obligations. I am Daryl Johnson of the Air Force's Defense Council Assistance Program, and it's 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region. Please join me as I pour myself a drink to relax, sit down, and share some thoughts on defensive litigation and advocacy. For this week's update on the law, we're going to discuss the Court of Appeals to the Armed Forces' recent decision in United States v. Willman. After that, we'll continue our five-part series on impeachment with prior and consistent statements by focusing on the confrontation step. One way to think about the decision in Willman is that it creates an instance where something that would appear to be part of the record suddenly becomes invisible when the appellate courts turn to evaluate sentence appropriateness. Before discussing the Willman case, however, it might be helpful to quickly go over what exactly the courts of criminal appeals do when reviewing a sentence imposed at court-martial. Pursuant to Article 66, quote, The court may affirm only such sentence or part or amount of the sentence as the court finds correct in the law and fact and determines on the basis of the entire record should be approved. So what does that mean? The easy part is that the CCA may not affirm a sentence that violates the law and may not affirm a sentence that is based on erroneous facts. But the statute adds that in addition, the CCA must determine that the sentence should be approved. To me, that sounds like an opportunity for clemency, but the appellate courts disagree. But they get pretty metaphysical. They state that sentence appropriateness involves the judicial function of assuring that justice is done and that the accused gets the punishment he deserves, while clemency, on the other hand, involves bestowing mercy, treating an accused with less rigor than he deserves. Now, I'll tell you, that is not how I would define clemency. In fact, I would argue that a petition or request for clemency is normally focused on demonstrating why the particular person doesn't deserve the punishment imposed, and that a lesser punishment is more appropriate. But it is what it is. The important thing to note is that the FSICA and other CCAs look not only to whether a sentence is lawful, but also apply a sentence appropriateness analysis. As a quick aside, I should probably apologize to Alan Abrams, who is essentially the producer of this podcast, because he provides me with material and suggestions, and then I end up filling it out with my two cents, and it probably makes him crazy. Just get to the point, Johnson. So anyway, back to Wilman. As you might have guessed, the Wilman case included the issue of whether the sentence imposed was appropriate. Specifically, Wilman argued that certain conditions of his confinement were cruel and unusual and therefore unlawful under the Eighth Amendment and Article 55. He also argued that even if the confinement conditions did not violate the Constitution or Article 55, that the sentence was, when factoring in the confinement conditions, inappropriately severe. 
In support of his argument, the appellant submitted an affidavit describing the conditions at issue. Specifically, that was a foot injury he suffered while in confinement and for which he argued he received inadequate medical care. By the way, it was pretty clear CAF was not going to grant relief when it stated that the appellant's or described the appellant's injury as an injury to his big toe suffered during a flag football game. Doesn't sound very sympathetic for a cruel and unusual punishment claim. When the Court of Criminal Appeals considered the appellant's claim, it considered the appellant's affidavit, but found that even if the allegations set out in the affidavit were true, the appellant failed to meet his burden of establishing that the prison officials improperly administered medical treatment and were deliberately indifferent to his health and safety as required under the law pertaining to cruel and unusual punishment. Thus, the sentence was not unlawful. The Air Force Court then turned to its sentence appropriateness analysis, but specifically declined to consider the appellant's affidavit and, therefore, the conditions of his confinement when, he de- when it determined that the sentence should be approved. The majority of the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces found that the Air Force Court got it right. It stated that since the appellant first brought these issues up when the case was with the Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals, the claim he made could be considered to evaluate whether there was cruel and unusual punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment or Article 55, but the allegations that he raised could not be considered for evaluating whether the sentence was appropriate. So why is that? How is it that a document within an appellate record is there one minute and then seemingly disappears the next? Let's walk through it. First, consider how the document got in the record. In accordance with the joint rules of appellate procedure, the appellant filed a motion to attach the affidavit to the record for consideration by the court. The government had seven days to file an opposition, but here it is not clear whether that occurred. Based on the fact that the Air Force Court considered the affidavit, we can conclude that the motion was granted and the affidavit was attached to the record for the court's consideration. But is the affidavit now part of, quote, the entire record, end of quote? The answer is largely found in the earlier CAF case of United States v. Jesse, which was decided in 2020. There, the majority cited earlier cases that define the phrase entire record to include the record of trial, allied papers, and the briefs and arguments that government and defense counsel, and the appellant personally, might present regarding matters that are in the record of trial and allied papers. The allied papers, by the way, are all those things that are required by the RCM to be attached to the record, like marked but unadmitted exhibits, deferment requests, and action on the request, etc. Here, the appellant's affidavit contained new information because the injury and treatment, or lack thereof, likely occurred while he was in confinement after trial. So it was not in the record of trial or allied papers, and it was not regarding matters in the record or the allied papers. So, according to CAF, it was not part of the entire record. So why was the Air Force Court allowed to consider it when evaluating the appellant's Eighth Amendment claim and the Article 55 claim? Well, that is because CAF has made an exception, and that exception applies only to claims of cruel and unusual punishment. At this time, I will not get into why that is, but they did, and therefore the Air Force Court properly granted the motion to attach the affidavit to the record for the court's consideration of the Eighth Amendment and Article 55 claims. But wait, now that it's properly in the record, because it came in under the exception, why couldn't the Air Force Court consider it when making its sentence appropriateness assessment? Here, the majority acknowledges, quote, that reasonable arguments can be made to the contrary, end of quote, but essentially determined that because the affidavit could not have been admitted solely for the sentence appropriateness analysis, it couldn't escape that prohibition simply because it was admitted for a legitimate purpose. 
One of the reasonable arguments to the contrary can be found in Judge Sparks' dissent, in which now Chief Judge Olson joined. Judge Sparks noted that, quote, The majority's view sets up an odd situation in this and future cases where documents that are obviously part of the record are, curiously, simultaneously outside the record. Also interesting, at least to me, is the majority's analysis felt that allowing the Air Force Court to consider the affidavit would somehow amount to, quote, a broad extra statutory exception that would potentially swallow the text-based rule, end of quote. But the statutory text requires consideration of, quote, the entire record, end of quote. The statute does not define the entire record or restrict it to the record of trial and the Allied Papers. So to me, forbidding the CCA from considering an affidavit that has been properly entered into the record, well, that is the exception from the text of the statute, not vice versa. I apologize if that's a bit confusing. It, it just is a bit confusing. But what does all this mean to you, the trial-level practitioner? The case reinforces what was made evident in CAF's earlier decision in Jesse, and that is to get everything you can about problematic conditions of confinement and anything else that seems unjust and may warrant sentence appropriateness consideration into the record no later than your post-trial submissions to the convening authority. What that looks like can be gleaned from the things that appellant in Willman failed to do and that the majority pointed out in its decision. Specifically, he did not file a formal complaint with the jail and he waived his right to submit clemency matters. Although, as I mentioned before, it's not at all clear whether the injury occurred prior to the deadline for submitting such matters. At the end of the day, the rule created by the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces favors those who make formal complaints early and often. You need to advise your clients that if his or her confinement conditions are unreasonable, and we've seen people being denied prescription medicine, being held in solitary for improper purposes, being denied access to counsel, etc., you need to make sure that they know to utilize the grievance system within the facility and to notify you if the entry of judgment has not yet been accomplished or notify their appellate counsel if it has. Do not suffer in silence. If you can get the complaint in in time to be part of the record, it will be something the Court of Criminal Appeals, in its unique power under Article 66, can look at and ask, is this just? If you or your client are unable to get the matter into the record, then the arduous confinement conditions may still be considered for Eighth Amendment or Article 55 purposes, but it will be like they never existed at all when the court turns to look at sentence appropriateness. As far as the court knows, for sentence appropriateness purposes, confinement was all flag football and picnics. Okay, switching over to this episode's advocacy focus, we're going to zoom in on the fourth part of our discussion about prior inconsistent statements, the confrontation. We'll get to proving up the prior inconsistent statement next time. The bottom line on confrontation is that you've already focused in on what the witness just testified to at trial through the confirmation step, and you've established that the witness made a statement prior to trial and that that prior statement should have been accurate in light of the circumstances in which it was made. That was done through the crediting step. And now you are closing the loop by confronting the witness with that prior statement, which is in stark conflict with the witness's in-court testimony. To give that a simple formulation, it's one, you testified X at trial, two, you talked about this issue in the past, and three, in the past, you said something completely different. Confrontation is the gotcha moment, and it's generally a one-question point, so the formulation of the question is, in most instances, pretty simple. But with that said, there are two nuances worth pointing out, maybe three. The first is your style. The confrontation step is your show. 
You've been building to this moment. You want it to be something that is memorable for the fact finder. And your style can help hammer this home. You want your style to convey that this is important. It's different and distinct from what may have come across as a bit of a boring crediting step immediately prior. Your demeanor should be authentic for the moment based on your dialogue with the witness. And that can change depending on the witness. If you are purposely keeping yourself calm and level while the witness goes into histrionics, you may want to remain matter-of-fact and flat in your affect when you go through the confrontation. It will all depend and be situational. This is, again, why you get paid the big bucks. If the witness just said something preposterous, you may want to consider demeanor that stays professional, but also shows that you feel the witness is just being nuts. This can be a subtle hand drag down your face, or slumping your shoulders with a slight head shake, or even just raised eyebrows towards the members. Another factor in your demeanor will likely be on whether this is one of your big prior inconsistent statements, one that's very meaningful for your case, or whether it's something less powerful, an inconsistency that you still want to get out, but it's not significant or super significant. You want to avoid putting too much emphasis on the latter to avoid overselling your case. For instance, like we discussed in an earlier episode, unless there's some unique facts, generally when a witness testifies at trial that something happened at 1600, but previously said it was 1700, and that's important enough for you to go into, still, because it's something that many people get wrong, displaying exasperation or disbelief will likely fall flat for the members and perhaps cost you some credibility. Another thing to consider regarding demeanor when you're in front of a panel is whether you want to turn and ask your confrontation question while facing the members. This can be an effective way of letting the panel know that you have completed the crediting step and this is the big question, the reason for the cross, the big reveal. Your body language as you're facing the panel and you ask the confrontation question can also convey that the inconsistency is significant, assuming of course that you believe it is. Remember also that how quickly you ask your question and the volume at which you ask it also matter. If you just had an extended crediting step and then move too quickly through the confrontation, you may have lost your big moment. Another area of nuance is the interplay between the answer you get back from the witness and the actual question you asked. Your confrontation question gives the witness basically three potential responses. Yes, no, or something to the effect of, I don't know, or I don't recall. The answer, of course, really matters because if the witness answers yes, then that means the impeachment is complete. They've admitted that they made the prior inconsistent statement. I will say, I will add here real quick, is you hear all the time as litigators, don't ask the one too many. And I want to bring it up here because this is a lot of the time when defenders or litigators will ask the one too many because they just got their gotcha. They admitted the prior inconsistent statement. But if the litigator in trial feels like that didn't make a big enough splash, they have trouble leaving it alone. They got what they needed. They have the inconsistency, but they feel like they need to drive it home. And then they ask, and that's not the same thing what you just testified to or some other thing that really is an invitation for the witness to explain. That's not what you want to do at this step. You're done. They admitted they made the prior inconsistent statement. You're all set for your argument later. Move on. On the other hand, if the witness doesn't say yes, if they say no or I don't know, well, that means you need to prove the statement up to complete the impeachment so that you can argue it later. And we're going to cover how you do that in the next episode. So even though we, the lawyers, know that yes, no, and I don't recall are the only three types of responses that are acceptable, witnesses are not always so straightforward. For example, let's say you're asking about a prior written statement 
such as a text message, and you have asked, quote, and in that text you stated it was a blue Ford. The witness may respond, if that's what it says. That sort of answer has the potential to trip someone up because it sounds like the witness has a memory problem, but sort of agreed with you. You may be tempted to give them the statement to look at, but that would not be an impeachment. That's refreshing recollection, and the witness just got you off track. You also may be tempted to offer up extrinsic evidence of the statement to complete the impeachment, but that would be premature because the witness hasn't answered your question. You ask whether the text read, it was a blue Ford. You want the witness to answer that question. Again, if it is a yes, they admitted they made the prior statement and the impeachment is complete. If it's a no or I don't know, you can move to proving it up, which again we'll cover in the next episode. But to get there, you need to orient the witness back to the yes, no, I don't recall answers so that you can figure out how to proceed. You do that by directing the witness. You may say, I'm sorry, I'm not asking you to agree with me for the sake of agreeing with me. My question is, did you make the statement? Let's try another example. Let's say that you've got a witness who you've been impeaching all day. You are walking them through the prior inconsistent statement after prior inconsistent statement, and after hours of this, they are visibly defeated and conceding basically everything. You start doing another impeachment based on a prior inconsistent statement, and the witness responds, if you say so. Again, this is a circumstance where you need to orient the witness to the actual question. Did you make that statement? Now, those last two examples demonstrate pretty agreeable witnesses. Witnesses are not always agreeable. They can be combative and try to either explain themselves or give themselves an out. For example, let's say that you've got a witness who made an omission while speaking to investigators by not mentioning an important text message that she had sent to your client that could be read as undermining her allegations. The witness did turn over her cell phone for forensic examination, but not until after motions practice. When asked about the omission at trial, you didn't tell them about that text message. The witness replied, I turned over my whole cell phone. What do you do? This is your chance to show that you know the facts way better than the witness. And you're going to be basically working on the fly at this point. You're going to have to hit rewind on your cross. So let's walk through how this might look with an example that we've been using. Imagine that you have walked through your crediting step to demonstrate that the witness spoke with investigators the day after the event, understood the seriousness, understood she needed to provide complete details, etc., and now you're moving to the confrontation by asking, you didn't tell them that you texted Airman Snuffy to come to your room, quote, if it fails, referring to his attempt to hook up with Airman Smith. Answer, I turned over my whole cell phone. Okay, let's take a step back and make sure we're talking about the same thing. The events of this case happened back in October of last year. You met with investigators the next day. You didn't give your phone to investigators that day. You gave your phone to investigators after we had a motions hearing in this case. The motions hearing was in January of this year. That was months after the night that we've been talking about. And after Airman Snuffy had already been charged. When you met with investigators in October, the day after that night, you did not tell them anything about that if it fails, text. This is not the only potential solution to this problem. Another might be to just ask your question again and again until you get the answer. 
After all, it's not asked and answered unless the witness has answered the actual question that you asked. That said, when doing that, be sensitive to the power dynamic between you and the witness. For some witnesses, this sort of repetition may appear like you are being a bully for no reason. At the end of the day, you need to complete the cycle. Confirm, credit, confront. And you have a number of ways to get there. I hope this discussion was helpful in that regard. In the next episode, we will discuss proving up the prior inconsistent statement, either with the witness or otherwise. Thank you for listening, and I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away And will you please say hello to the friends that I know Tell them it won't be long And they'll be happy to know that you saw me go I was